Well, good morning. It's great to be with you today. And if you're visiting, uh, welcome to you especially. My name's Kieran Carr. I'm the Associate Minister here. And it's my privilege to preach and bring God's Word uh, today. We're continuing a series called Meeting Jesus. And uh, what a great story that we have uh, in store for us. Uh, I didn't choose the Old Testament reading, but it's uh, amazingly uh, appropriate for uh, a lead-in to what we're looking at today. The the topic is the surprising Jesus. And uh, if you look at uh, verse 7 of of Isaiah 55, uh, it says, uh, Let the wicked forsake their ways, uh, return to the Lord, that he may have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon And really, that's a theme of what we see in the story of of this abundant pardon, this forgiveness. And then it goes on in Isaiah 55, For for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as uh, the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Uh, I read a book on just this verse uh, recently, last year, and um, it struck me for the first time that that when we think about... God saying, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways, and as high as the heavens are above the earth. We kind of just think about that in vague, general terms. But if you look at the context, what it's saying is that our idea of God is one that he's cruel or harsh or unforgiving, whereas um, what it's saying here is that he will abundantly pardon. I'm not like you. I'm not, I don't think like you. And, and your idea of me is so small, of my love and my forgiveness is so small. And so he's saying specifically that, that I'm just so much more forgiving and so much more loving and my pardon and my forgiveness is so much more abundant than your thoughts. It, it, it's, it's so much bigger than your thoughts. And that's what we're going to see in the story today as we think about the surprising Jesus and just how surprising Jesus is. If you look at verse 26 uh, at the end of Luke 5, it says that they were seized with amazement, they were filled with awe, and they gave praise to God. Such was how surprising he was, his love and his forgiveness. And so we're going to look at this from two different perspectives in the passage. We're going to look at it from the perspective of the paralyzed man and and the surprise that came for him. And we're going to look at it from the perspective of the religious leaders and how much of a surprise he gave them. And here's what I think God is saying to us. Through the paralyzed man, God is trying to challenge us. And through the religious leaders, God is trying to captivate us. That's where we're going. We're going to look at it firstly from the perspective of the paralyzed man, that through the paralyzed man, God is trying to challenge us. If you think about it, it doesn't take a PhD to figure out what the paralyzed man wants from Jesus and what his friends want from Jesus. What does he want? He wants to to walk. He wants to be healed, right? Right. Really obvious, but, but try to picture the scene here, okay? Because the first surprise in the story, the first surprise is actually for Jesus. Because he's in a house, it's jam-packed, and there's people outside, nobody can get in. And while he's trying to speak and teach, and of course they're absolutely captivated at the maker of the heavens and the earth in front of them, teaching them. But there's like news, there's, there's, sorry, there's noise on, on the roof, and, 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 then, and there's more noise, and then there's like... 
dust starts to kind of like start falling down on top of like where maybe where Troy and Emily are sitting and, 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 and then like full on bits of like leaf and wood and mud are, are falling on top of them and then a huge hole and Jesus like, like a youth minister here at St. Philip's is like trying to keep their attention but you know he finally just gives up and just will watch while this hole is being dug in the roof and then this man who like they've got these ropes and they're lowering him down and just hoping that you know, he, he doesn't kind of fall off and land on Malachi. So, you know, you've got a paralytic and a paraplegic. And, and, and so they're watching and he gets, he gets lowered down right in front of Jesus. And all eyes are on Jesus. And then Jesus says to the man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And I can just picture the, the disciples or, or the friends, someone in the front row going, Ah, psst, Jesus, uh, it's his legs. It's his legs. He can't walk. He wants to walk. He needs to be healed. But Jesus knows that, doesn't he? He's got eyes. So why does he say, your sins are forgiven? Well, it's because he's trying to challenge us. He's trying to challenge us. This is what he's saying. He's saying, you think that your main you think you know what your main problem in life is but you don't i know you've got problems i know you've got suffering i know you've got needs and we are going to get to that but the main problem that you're facing is never your suffering the main problem that you're facing is your sin because it keeps you from me Now, this is an extremely controversial thing to say in this day and age because we all like to think of ourselves as victims or at least as our culture wants us to think of ourselves as primarily and solely as victims. And it's true, we're victims of all kinds of terrible things. Our culture likes to think of it as solely victims. And we struggle with the idea of thinking that, that we're also responsible for our responses to what happens to us. And we might have even contributed to some of our problems. I'm, you need discernment. I'm not saying it's all the case. This is a controversial thing to say, which is why Jesus is trying to challenge us. But before you put your wall up, before you get offended, I, I want to invite you to bear with me for a sec and, and consider that this is actually a very empowering idea because the fact is that we can't control what happens to us. We, we can have no influence of, of some of the things that happen to us. But we can control how we respond. We can control our response. And you know, if you've read The Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, some of you, that goes over your heads, but, but he learnt this better than anyone. He was in the, put in the Soviet gulags, and of everyone in the world, he could take on a victim mentality. But the turning point for him was refusing to take on a victim status and actually seeing that how he even contributed to his situation of ending up in the Soviet gulags under that horrible oppression. And that was the turning point for him that led him to be empowered. And he wrote The Gulag Archipelago, which won the um, Nobel Prize for Literature in the 1970s, and it is largely acclaimed for being the one responsible for bringing about down the entire Soviet Russia. Talk about an empowering idea. 
So what's, asking, what's Jesus asking this man to do? I think he's asking him to go, to go deeper. He's saying, you're not going deep enough. You, 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 you long for physical healing, but, but there are longings of the human heart that go much deeper than that. You, you need to go deeper. Look, maybe, look at all these other people, mate, who can walk. You see, they're still, they're still not happy. They're still not satisfied. Look at all these people who have made it in Cottesloe. I mean, who else? Where else would you want to be? They're still unhappy. They're still unsatisfied. He's saying, you've got to go deeper. Now, let's not be too harsh because I know what it's like to have a chronic illness. And, and maybe some of you do too. And, and the only thing you think about, the thing that you long for, is what? Healing is to get better. But Jesus is challenging us to go deeper. The guy is probably thinking, if only I could walk again, I would never be sad. I'd never be unhappy. I'd never be angry. If only I got better, everything would be okay. And Jesus is saying, you're wrong. I know it sounds harsh, but you're wrong. If I fix your legs, you'll still be unhappy. Give it two months or four months or six months and the excitement will wear off. And friends, these unmet desires that we have and, and, and this lack of going deep enough is what the entire advertising industry is built on. This iPhone will do it. This new car will do it. This new holiday will do it. And we're complete suckers for it. But Jesus isn't even talking about a new iPhone. He's talking about new legs. And he's still saying, no, you're not going deep enough. It's not the thing that will ultimately satisfy you. Paul in Philippians 4, he he says, I found the secret of contentment. And isn't that what we're all looking for? Paul says he's found it. But in the passage today, Jesus is saying, you're not going deep enough. You're looking in all of the wrong places. Pastor Tim Keller in New York uh, talks about a writer called Cynthia Heimel in, in New York who used to wait on aspiring actors and actresses. They were s- struggling to you know, make it uh, on Broadway. Uh, but this was before they were famous. And, and you know, they're telling themselves, if only I could make it in the business, if only I had this or that, then I'd finally be content. But Heimel writes in this article that she found that when some of them did make it, and these were like superstars, they became insufferable, angry, manic, unstable. They were actually worse off for getting the thing that they wanted. Have you heard um, stories about that with the lottery as well, winning the lottery? Like it, it, for some people it just destroys them, absolutely destroys them. Well, here's what she wrote. She said, I pity celebrities. I No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed. The morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing that they were striving for, that fame thing, 
that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness. That thing had happened and nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. And then she writes this, coming from an atheist. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. But friends, here's what Jesus is saying to the paralyzed man. He's saying, I'm not going to play that dirty, rotten, practical joke on you. I'm not going to do that to you. I'm not going to give you the thing that you want. I'm going to give you the thing that you need, which is forgiveness so that you can have me. You see, the Bible says that our main problem is that we're all building our identity on the wrong foundation. I don't know what it looks like for you, but we're all telling ourselves, including me, if, if only I could get that or have this, then it'll be okay. If only we get the staffing all sorted at St. Philip's, then I'll be okay. I don't know what it is for you, but we're all doing it. And it's the wrong foundation, Jesus is saying. You've got to go deeper. You see, we're all looking for something to save us from our version of hell and and rescue us and bring us into our version of heaven. We've all got it and we're all doing it. But Jesus is saying, if that's what I give you, if I give you that, you'll still be unsatisfied. You'll still be unhappy and you'll be even more frustrated because it won't do the trick. You see, in many ways, the gospel is this, is that we're all looking for salvation out of one thing and into something else, and we're all trusting something to get us there. We're all looking to something to get us there. But Jesus is saying we're not going deep enough and that our saviour that we're trusting in isn't strong enough. It's going to let us down. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the only one who, if you get him, will truly satisfy you. And if you let him down, he'll truly forgive you. You see, every other thing that you build your life on, when you get it, it won't actually satisfy you. And when you let it down, its wrath will be unbearable. It'll punish you. Let me give you an example. When I was in my early 20s, I thought that being a worship leader on guitar would be the thing that, you know, in front of hundreds or maybe even thousands of people would save me from, from being average and usher me into a life of, of being awesome, right? And so this meant that my guitar would save me. And so I served it with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind and with all my strength. I offered my life to it because that was the thing that was going to save me. But it also meant that when I made a mistake, and boy did I make some mistakes. In fact, when I got my biggest break in front of hundreds and hundreds of people, I had my capo on the wrong, the very first song, I had my capo on the wrong thing and I started, it was awful. Right? And when that type of thing happens that you're serving, when you let it down, boy does it come down with vengeance on you. It's not just a little disappointing, it's devastating. It's hell. You see, my God was punishing me because I wasn't offering worthy sacrifices. I made a mistake. You know, at the end of our services, often we say, 
Father, we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice. We offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice because you're the only one who will satisfy and you're the only one who won't punish us when we let you down. And so we offer our lives to you. Well, I was offering my life to the guitar or I could be offering my life to making sure we get the staffing sorted here. Jesus is trying to challenge us through the paralyzed man and say, you're not going deep enough. It's not what you ultimately need. So I said the first surprise in the story is for the paralytic. He's challenging us. The the next surprise in the story is for the religious leaders. And through the religious leaders, God is trying to captivate us, to get a hold of us, get a grip on us. I love how in verse 26 it says they were seized with amazement. Jesus got a hold of them, captivated them with his beauty and his forgiveness. Because he says to this man, Jesus, your sins, a son, your sins are forgiven. And of course, you know, the religious leaders are looking on, there's a whole bunch of them, and they're like, what? This is blasphemy, you can't do that. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I mean, imagine if right now in the middle of my talk, Malcolm's like, you know what, I'm leaving in a month, who cares? I've had enough of Kieran. It comes up, spear tackles me into the drum kit, uh, just like, you know, complete whatever, whatever. And then, and then let's say Barb comes up and, and like helps you dust, dust me off and gets Malcolm back, back, back in, you know, calm down. And, and then Barb says, Malcolm, I forgive you. And I'm like, hang on a second, Bob, like, what do you need to forgive? He just spear-tackled me. He didn't do anything to you. Like, how are you able to forgive him? I'm the one who needs to forgive him because he sinned against me. See, you see, friends, everybody knew who was in that house and watching on that our sins are ultimately against God. God is the offended party. And so for Jesus to say to this man your sins are forgiven, is doing only something God can do and putting himself as equal with God, which is why they say, this is blasphemy. And he knows their thoughts. He, he hears their thoughts. By the way, don't let anyone ever convince you that Jesus never claimed to be God. There's some people who think that. It's right here, friends. Mark your Bibles. Maybe not the Pew Bibles. Luke 5. That he's making himself equal with God. And he hears their thoughts. They're just thinking this. They're not saying it. And, then, and so he asks them a question. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Now, that is a doozy of a question. Uh, you know, kind of a bit of a mind twister, and ones that commentators have struggled with too, which is easier. Because on the one hand, it would be easier to say your sins are forgiven because he wouldn't have to prove it, right? There's no visible change in a person who's been forgiven. Whereas if he says stand up and walk, well, let's see. Does he stand up and walk? You see, if his words are powerful, he'll stand up and work, walk. But if his words are not powerful, then he'll just stay where he is. So on one hand, it would be easier to say your sins are forgiven. 
But on the other hand, to say your sins are forgiven is much harder for him to say. Firstly, because it gets up the noses of the religious leaders. Look at their response. He knows what their response is going to be. He knows what a bold claim that he's making. And he knows that this response is ultimately what leads where? Ultimately leads to the cross. Because the Jews put him up there for blasphemy. And so, the long shadow of the cross in Luke chapter 23, how many chapters away is that? All the way in Luke chapter 23, casts its long shadow all the way back to here, Luke 5, with the religious leaders and their outrage at what the claim that Jesus made. And Jesus knows. It's a much harder thing for him to say. Jesus knows that the only way that this man's legs can be made mobile is if his legs are nailed to the cross, completely immobile. Jesus knows that the only way that he can make this man dance is if he dies in his place. Jesus knows. He knows that the only way that this man can be forgiven is if Jesus is forsaken. And so to say your sins are forgiven is harder by far. And you just picture the religious leaders looking at them at him with their outrage that will ultimately grow into murder on the cross. And Jesus looks at them and he says... I'm going to do the harder thing for you, the loving thing, even though you'll hate me for it because it's the only way that you can be set free and I still love you even as you look at me with that murderous intent. How great is his forgiveness? How surprising is his love? If you don't think that Jesus and his forgiveness is surprising, you need to hear this story of a Jesus follower, South African woman in the late 90s uh, who was at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. During a session, she was old and frail. She slowly rose to her feet and across the room from her were several white security police officers, one of whom, Mr Vanderbroek, had been tried and found implicated in the murders of both her son and her husband years before. What he'd done is that he'd come to her home, taken her son, shot him at point-blank range and then set his body on fire while he and his mates partied nearby. Sometime later, he and his cohorts returned to take away her husband as well. Then almost two years after her husband's Disappearance. Mr. Vanderbroek returned to fetch the woman. And she vividly remembered going to the place beside a river where she was shown her husband bound and beaten but still strong in spirit, lying on a pile of wood. The last words she heard from him as the officers poured petrol over his body and set him alight were, Father, forgive them. Now the woman stood in the courtroom listening to Mr. Vanderbroek's confessions of what he'd done. 
and afterwards a member of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission turned to her asking what she wanted and how justice should be done. The old woman said calmly, I want three things. I want to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burned so that I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. She paused and then said, My husband and son were my only family. I want secondly, therefore, for Mr. Vanderbroek to become my son. I would like him to come twice a month to the township and spend a day with me so that I can pour out on him whatever love I still have remaining in me. Finally, she continued, and this was my husband's wish also, I would ask someone to come to my side and lead me across the courtroom so that I can take Mr. Vanderbroek in my arms and embrace him and let him know that he is truly forgiven. Someone came to help her up and walk her across to Mr. Vanderbroek. He was so overwhelmed that he fainted. Friends, this is just a tiny snapshot of the love that Jesus has for us and the price that he paid on the cross for our forgiveness. And so it's good for us to take a moment to bask and wonder in that love and that forgiveness. Hear the word of the Lord, Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let's pray. Father, give us power to grasp how great your loving forgiveness is towards us. How high and wide and deep and long. Help us to be amazed and to be filled with awe and to give our praise to you at the price that you paid. Even as we gather around the Lord's table, Lord, help us to be amazed and filled with awe. And Lord, for every one of us here who's holding back from you, please show them how you've held nothing back from them. Show them that they're missing out. 
and help us to see that you're the only one who truly satisfies and the only one who truly forgives when we let you down. Lord, help this to be the thing that we live for. Captivate us. Amen.